Well, good morning. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you, it'll be on our screen as well. Uh, Today we're starting what is my favorite series that we do every year that we call Ghost Stories, where we look at the uh, Holy Spirit. Last year we looked at theology of the Holy Spirit. This year we're looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how he relates to us personally. Uh, I'm so committed to this series and to fall this year, I actually wore my Halloween socks, and so uh, you're welcome. Sorry, you had to see my hairy legs too. Hey, John chapter 3, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read John 3, verses 1 through 8. And God's Word says this. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for your word for this day, the gathering of your church and your house to celebrate and lift the name of Jesus today. And God, I pray now as we walk through the role of the Holy Spirit now as it relates to our conversion as Jesus' followers, that, Lord, your word would speak loud and clear today. Father, draw us closer to Jesus. Give us the ears we need to hear from you this morning. God, we need a word from the throne room of heaven. God, give us hearts to receive your word and hands and feet to live this out as we chase Jesus this week. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I think this week we can officially say that summer is over, October is here, Christmas music is now in the air, at least at my house. Last night I was finalizing my message, putting some final touches uh, on it, and as my wife came downstairs from putting our two girls to bed, I had white Christmas blaring through our Amazon Alexa, and she walked in the room and her exact words were, what is wrong with you? (laughs) So if you need marriage advice, come see me, I got you hooked up. But uh, we've often been asked the question, uh, why do we do a series called Ghost Stories? That seems sometimes maybe a little uh, counter what you should talk about in the church. And so why do we brand it this way? And I've always been a proponent of this, that at certain seasons of the year, there are certain things that we naturally think about. Every Christmas, so from July to December, we're always thinking about Santa Claus, right? If you didn't know I love Christmas, I'm done with the Christmas jokes. But every December, we we think about Santa, and we think about Christmas trees, and so many of those things. So we want to redeem those things in the church and talk about Jesus. Every February, what do we think about? Love is in the air, right? February 14th, Valentine's Day. So typically at our church, we do a series around marriage or relationships or something along those lines. Why? Because we want to redeem things that culture is naturally thinking about to a biblical worldview. Well, October every year, whether you like it or not, people are thinking about Halloween and pumpkins and ghosts and goblins. Again, no matter how Christian you are, we are inundated with these things around us all the time through the month of October. Thus, the idea of a ghost stories teaching series was born. 
And one of the favorite things that we do in this series is not just talk about the Holy Spirit, which we will do today and his role in our conversion. But at the end of this series, we're actually going to show you a pre-recorded, we call them ghost stories. They were recorded a few weeks ago around the fire where for the next four weeks, you're going to get to hear the testimony of somebody in our church where they share kind of the raw realities of where Jesus has brought them through, the things they've endured, but by God's grace, they're still standing and Jesus is still good. And they're like, I'm telling you, they're powerful and they're incredible. I think it will encourage you today. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit in conversion. What do we mean when we say conversion? I mean the inward transformation that takes place in your life and my life when I repent of my sin and I commit my life to Jesus. Hopefully you've done that today. Listen, there's two types of conversion we can experience. Number one is the initial choice to follow Jesus, but the Bible is abundantly clear that we go through a daily conversion as well, where the Holy Spirit in me is constantly changing me, growing me, molding me, and shaping me more into Christ-likeness. And I thought it would be appropriate today for us, if we're going to talk about this idea of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost in conversion, to look at the earliest recorded interaction that Jesus has in the Gospels with an individual that had a question about conversion. He had a question about spiritual birth in John chapter 3. It's interesting to me, if you look at back through those eight verses we just read a moment ago, that phrase, spiritual birth, or that concept, is actually presented five times in these eight simple verses. That is the main thrust of this entire passage. And there's several places we could have gone in the New Testament to talk about this idea of conversion in the Holy Spirit, but I think this is exactly where the Lord wants us today. And so we're going to breeze through this kind of rapidly today because at the very end I want you to have time to hear that testimony. So three distinct moments in this interaction today. Here's the first one. We see an unlikely introduction. An unlikely introduction if you're a note taker. Look at verse one with me again. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If you were to jump back to John chapter two, you would see Jesus has just completed what I think is probably one of his most famous miracles recorded in the scriptures. At a wedding celebration, they ran out of wine. Jesus took several large jars of water and did the water to wine miracle, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. Then a few days later, we see at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus went in and cleansed the temple, verses 13 through 25. You might remember that story. Maybe you've seen pictures in the past. Jesus goes into the temple. He flipped tables. He chased people with whips. Why? Because they were exploiting the sacrificial system that God had set up to their own profit and their own advantage. Side note, I was thinking about this this week. Don't mess with Jesus. If you ever wonder if Jesus was like a sissy or like a tough dude, read the end of John chapter 2. Jesus walks into a temple and cleans house. I mean, if one of y'all came into church this morning and started flipping tables, we would take you down. Nobody messed with Jesus. He flipped tables, and then the, the Bible says in John 2 that he actually fashioned a whip out of several cords and started whipping people. Can you imagine? But you didn't mess with Jesus. So just that's a little side note. If you mess with Jesus, he will whip you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay? That's why my mom spanked me. She said, Jesus did it. I can do it too. Now in John 3, here's what's crazy. He just did water to wine. Now we see Jesus cleansing the temple. And then in John 3, we're introduced to this brand new figure that we haven't seen before in the Gospels, Nicodemus. Now, John doesn't give us much background onto this individual. We just know his name at this point and that he carried the title of Pharisee. 
which is significant to this interaction. Who are the Pharisees? If you're unfamiliar with this, this is so important. The Pharisees in this time were this extremely devoted uh, group of religious leaders that existed and lived and ruled during the time of Jesus. Their title, Pharisee, simply means the separated ones. And that's how they were identified. We are the separated ones of this culture. And if you were a Pharisee, you really existed and lived by one goal, that you were going to follow to the strictest degree the Mosaic law found in the Old Testament. That every rule and command that God had laid out, you were going to follow it to the absolute strictest degree. Now listen to this. In the Old Testament law, there's approximately 613 different commands that God had given for his people to follow. So the Pharisees, what they would do is they'd say, okay, 613 commands that we have to follow, but to make sure that we follow them to the most strict degree, we're going to add rules to the rules to make sure we follow the rules. So for example, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. So we have to make sure we don't work on the Sabbath, so we're going to make a rule that says you can't even help people on the Sabbath. Because if I help someone, that could be considered work, therefore I might be violating the law of God. I heard years ago somebody told me, and I, I've never done research on this, that a Pharisee, uh, even on some days, they would not even stand up on the Sabbath. Like they remained seated the entire time. Because if they were to stand up, the heels of their shoes could potentially create a little rut in the ground, which would be considered work or farming to the Pharisee. And they didn't want to violate the commands of God. That's how strict these guys were with their rule following, the separated ones. But watch this. You know, religion's not a bad thing. Religion, when done properly, can be a very good thing. But when religion, here's where it gets dangerous, mixes with legalism, it produces self-righteousness. And that's what was happening with the Pharisees. There was nothing wrong with wanting to be obedient to the commands in which God had laid out. That's a phenomenal thing. But then they added legalism to it which says we're going to add rules upon rules and we're going to make this the strictest, most restricting thing possible. And what does that produce in the heart of all of us when we add to God's law? Self-righteousness. And God hates that. That's what's going on with these individuals. These Pharisees were known for their external religion, but internally they were dead. They were known for their external appearance, but internally, they were completely dead. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23 called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they may have looked beautiful, but on the inside, they were home to a dead corpse. What does religion matter if it never produces something spiritually inside of you? Keep going. Verse 2 here. So Nicodemus approaches Jesus, this Pharisee, this religious fanatic, this self-righteous religious leader. And look at what he says in verse 2. This man came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Hey, a few things I want us to see in this verse I think are important. First, Nicodemus had a genuine religious curiosity. If you read throughout the Gospels, typically when the Pharisees approached Jesus, they did it trying to trap him. They really didn't want to know the answer to the questions they posed. They simply wanted to trap Jesus. Why? Because if they could invalidate the message Jesus was preaching, they would then invalidate the mission in which he came for. That was the goal of the Pharisees. But I think Nicodemus here had a genuine religious curiosity. There was something about him that was a little bit different than the way the other Pharisees approached Jesus. Here's the second thing which is important. When did he come to Jesus? At night. 
You continue to read through the Gospels, again, another interesting note. It's typically when a group of Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes came to Christ, they did so in broad daylight when a crowd was around him. Why? Because they wanted to invalidate Jesus' message. Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Because while he was curious, he was also fearful and full of shame. What if the other Pharisees saw what he was doing? What if they actually were around when he approached Jesus with a genuine religious curiosity? What's going on here? Why? What would they think of Nicodemus? That's when self-righteousness creeps over. I'm so concerned about how other people view me. Nicodemus had to come to Jesus at night. Here's the third thing which I think is important. What Nicodemus recognized in Jesus. Look again at verse 2. It says he calls Jesus rabbi. That's a word, if you're unfamiliar with that, a word that means teacher, a word that expressed some kind of uh, authority or respect for a person. Think about that like when you were a child, you might approach somebody and you call them Mr. Taylor or Mrs. Taylor. Some of you, when we talk, you call me pastor. Sometimes you go to the doctor, what do you call them? Dr. So-and-so. Why do we do that? Because we're just attaching a little bit of authority and respect to individuals. That's what Nicodemus is doing here with Jesus. Now, look at what he says here. He recognizes in some sense that Jesus has come from God. Nicodemus knew that Jesus was a greater religious teacher than he was. That's what Nicodemus was, a religious teacher, a Pharisee. But Jesus was also the very same thing. What was the difference between the two? Nicodemus had never done anything remotely close to what Jesus had done. Because while Jesus would teach with absolute authority, he would also follow it up with miracles like the world had never seen, validating his message. So while Nicodemus had a deep religious curiosity, which was fueled by the recognition that Jesus was different, he knew he was missing something. So under the cover of night, he comes to Jesus. Here's our second interaction. We see a needed response. A needed response. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless somebody's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus looks back at him. How can anybody be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb for a second time? I love this. Right out of the gate, verses 1 and 2, Nicodemus acknowledges in a general sense who Jesus is. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus does not stop and go, Nicodemus, man, thanks, bro. I really appreciate that you called me rabbi. I'm really looking, what kind of questions do you have for me? What, you, have, you know, I know you're curious here. What's going on? What kind of questions can I answer? Instead, Nicodemus goes, I know you are a teacher from God. I understand that you're different. I get all of those things. And look at what Jesus does. He flat out ignores him. You notice that there? From verse 2 to 3, Jesus just flat ignores Nicodemus and takes the conversation in a completely other direction. You ever had one of those conversations with a friend or a spouse before? Where you mean you're, you're locked and loaded and you want to have a really serious conversation with them and you're, you're honed in and the first thing out of their mouth is, what do you want for dinner? Right? It's like they just transfer everything really fast on you. You're going, what's going on? That's what Jesus does to Nicodemus. Why does he do that? This is so important. I firmly believe that the reason Jesus did that is because he's getting to the question Nicodemus wanted to ask but wasn't sure how to. He's getting to the question Nicodemus wanted to ask but was too afraid to ask. He's getting to the question that Nicodemus wasn't sure how to ask. Why? Because this question would have caused Nicodemus to admit that he had got his entire religious system wrong. He would have to admit that what he had devoted his whole entire life to 
was incorrect. Jesus is looking into the heart of Nicodemus and having the conversation that Nicodemus needed to have, not necessarily the one he wanted to have. Here's a side note, and I wrote this down this week, and I think this is important. Aren't you glad that our Jesus knows the questions we want to ask even when we don't know how to ask them? The scriptures say in Romans that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in unspoken groanings. That when I don't know what to say to God, that the Spirit translates for me and says, this is what they're trying to say. This is what they want to say. This is what they need to say. That even when I don't have the ability to fully express my heart before God, that Jesus goes, I know what you're trying to say. I get it. It reminds me that Jesus knows the depths of my soul, even if I don't know how to express it properly to him. So Jesus takes this conversation in verse 3, turns it to a conversation on spiritual birth. And watch how this happens here. Look at verse 3 with me one more time. Jesus starts with two words. In my translation, there's only one word present there. In yours, it probably says, truly, truly. Or it might say, amen, amen. This was a phrase that Jesus used often in the Gospels to really express this idea of, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Anytime you see that in the Gospels, if you see Jesus say truly, truly, or amen, amen, that's him trying to get the attention of whoever he is talking to in that moment. Think of it this way. You remember when you were a kid and you were up in your room and you left a mess downstairs? I remember my mom. There were three different ways that she called me. Way number one is I would be downstairs and she'd say, Aaron, come down and clean this mess up. That meant what she wanted me to do was important, but I could take my time getting there. Here was way number two. Aaron David, get down and clean this mess up. That meant what I needed to come clean up was pretty important, and I should probably move swiftly. But if I didn't, I was still going to be alive in the next 10 minutes. The third way, Aaron David Taylor, get down here. Y'all know when your mom says all three of your names that you're probably not going to like live to see night. You understand that? We've all been there before. Like, you're just not going to live beyond the, the rest of the afternoon. Because what she was about to say to me was of utmost importance, and I better pay attention, tune in, and listen up. That's truly, truly. That's amen, amen. Jesus is saying, what I'm about to say is of utmost importance. Drop everything else. Listen to what I'm about to tell you, because this matters. Now, look at what he says here. Jesus tells Nicodemus, pay attention. What does he say? Verse 3. Unless somebody's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This would have been revolutionary for Nicodemus here. Because what Jesus is telling him, the, the religious efforts that you've devoted your life to mean nothing in what it, when it comes to eternal life. Instead, what do you need? You need the Spirit of God, as we're going to see Jesus explain in a second, to do a work in your heart to get you entrance and access to the kingdom of God. You have to be born again, is what Christ tells him. You need a spiritual birth to take place because your religious efforts are completely insufficient. And I love what Nicodemus says in verse 4. How can anybody be born when he's old? This is just like a logical progression to this. Imagine, you've never heard this before. What Nicodemus has experienced and lived and devoted his life to, and then you've got this religious teacher named Jesus who says, well, actually you have to be born again. And then Nicodemus says these words, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now, there's really two ways you can approach Nicodemus' phrase here. First off is absolute confusion. That he was just confused and he's legitimately asking Jesus like, all right, Lord, things are about to get weird and awkward because I don't want to have to have this conversation with my mom. Um, but I don't think that that's really how this works. How's, that's just not going to happen. Now, now listen to me for a second. Often you're going to hear 
it taught that way, that he's confused. He's not confused. Nicodemus was of the smartest people on the planet at this point in time. He's not a confused person here. He's of utmost intellect. So when Jesus tells him that he must be born again, I don't think Nicodemus is confused. I think he fully understands that Jesus is talking about spiritual things here, and he's not confused at all. So what's happening here? Look at what he says to Jesus. He says, Jesus, it is impossible for me to be born physically a second time. That's not going to happen. That is an impossibility for me to even make that happen yet again. Why? It's not because of the impossibility of the situation, but think of it this way. I read so many uh, pastors this week, and I've never really thought about this before. Nicodemus, I believe, understood that he had nothing to do with his first birth. Have you ever thought about that? You had, you had no part in your first birth. You didn't get to choose your parents. You didn't get to choose when you were born. You didn't get to choose where you were born. All of a sudden, you simply existed. Congratulations. You ever thought about that before? We had nothing to do with our first birth. So I think the obvious conclusion that Nicodemus is starting to talk through with Jesus here is this, that if I have to be spiritually born now, reborn is what Jesus calls it, born again, that if I had nothing to do with my first birth, Jesus, what would it look like for me to be spiritually born again that I can have nothing to do with that either? You see, he's kind of going to this logical conclusion with Christ. That if I had nothing to do with my first physical birth, how could I have anything to do with my second spiritual birth? If I had nothing to do with my own efforts of being born the first time, the logical conclusion is that if I have to be born again spiritually, that I would have nothing to do with that either. Now watch this. This is why this is such a radical thought for Nicodemus. Because he would have believed and dedicated his whole life to the fact that he had everything to do with his spiritual realities and his spiritual births. That's why he followed 613 laws to the utmost religious and strictest sense. Why? Because he thought he could take care of his spiritual self and he didn't necessarily need God to do it for him. And Jesus flips that idea on its head and he says, no, 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 you didn't have anything to do with your physical birth and now your second birth, your spiritual one, you have nothing to do with that as well. And then Jesus says, let me explain to you how this works. The Spirit of God. Here's our third point, an important explanation. Right to the heart of the matter, Jesus explains how spiritual birth happens for each of us, answering Nicodemus' question, verse 5. He says, truly I tell you, what do you have to do? You have to be born of water and what? The Spirit. Then, without those things, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, go back to the mind of a Pharisee. What would water have represented in a religious sense? These guys were dedicated to physical cleansing. It was a representation of what they believed was occurring spiritually. And they thought that if they did all of these things and they cleansed themselves physically, that maybe that would earn them spiritual merit with God. Jesus turns it on his head here because notice what he didn't say. Unless somebody is born of water, then he can enter the kingdom of God. No, Jesus says we got to take water, the idea of cleansing, and we got to combine it with the Spirit. What's going on here? Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, it's not about the external. You need the Spirit of God to do an internal cleansing in you. What you have devoted to your your life to doing externally, you need to ask the Spirit of God to do for you 
internally. That's the Spirit's role. Why? Because if it's all external, I can take care of it. If it's all internal, I have to be completely dependent on the Spirit to do it for me. There's a difference there. You read throughout the Old Testament, Paul elaborates on this so much. Paul says that you and I in Ephesians 2 are deserving of God's wrath. Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God, completely and hopelessly uh, lost without Jesus, Romans 2. So no matter how much external work I do, if the Spirit of God never does an internal work in me, Jesus says, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. It's not an outside-in kind of religion like every other one is. It's an inside-out kind of religion. See the difference there? We need the Spirit of God to do a saving work in us where we die to ourselves, Galatians 2 says, where the Spirit dwells in us, Romans 8 says, where we daily submit to His leading, Romans 10 tells us to do. Jesus is taking what was familiar and known to Nicodemus and putting the emphasis now on the Spirit of God's work inside his heart. Look at verse 6 with me. Jesus goes on and explains it further. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is what? It's Spirit. If our salvation efforts, our getting right with God, was dependent upon me, it's useless. That's what Jesus says. Flesh simply produces flesh. And fleshly results are temporary and insufficient to make me right with God. They're not going to work. But that's where Nicodemus would have placed his entire life and emphasis on. Instead, what do I need? I need the Spirit of God to do a spiritual work in my heart because I can't do it on my own. I need the Spirit to transform me, not my own efforts. And I love verse 7 here. It's going to be on the screen. Jesus, I don't know that he's frustrated, but he is a little bit. Because right in the midst of this whole conversation, this whole conversation goes through the majority of John chapter 3, almost half the chapter. But right halfway through this conversation, Jesus looks at him and he goes, do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. He's kind of looking at Nicodemus going, are you kidding me? Are we having this conversation? We will, but I'm a little irritated with you. You should know this stuff because you are a religious teacher, Nicodemus. But I have to explain it to you. So I will. Verse 8. Jesus goes on with this explanation. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everybody who's born of the Spirit. So he's really getting down to the, the ground level here with Nicodemus. He says, so we've, we've covered this idea that you've got to be born of the Spirit to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how does that happen? Because that would be the question of the mind of a religious leader here. They were very practical individuals. He wants to know the how behind the what. So Jesus gives him the illustration of the wind. Let me, let me illustrate this for you a little bit. Um, on Thursday, I was here at the church getting some stuff cleaned up, and out of nowhere, the storm came through. You guys might, wherever you lived, you probably experienced that too. For about half hour or so, it was just raining, the wind was howling, and I was in this room right, right in here vacuuming. And I could literally hear that garage door because of the wind outside. The garage door was starting to shake and vibrate and make some pretty loud noises. And so I look out these front windows there, and what do I see? You see leaves blowing around like crazy. You could hear, see the cars kind of moving a little bit because the wind was so powerful. See, could I see the wind? No. You don't see wind. It's invisible. Do you see the effects of the wind? Absolutely. The wind is powerful, and it's strong, and it's mighty. And while I can't see it, I can see the effects of that wind. Here's the thing about wind. You can't control it. You can't force it to do your bidding. I could not have walked into the parking lot of this church as a very sane person most of the time and said, wind, stop it, 
And then we are like, all right, sorry, man, we're, we'll go down to the town next, you know, next town over. It doesn't work that way. Wind does as it pleases, and we have one of two options. You can resist the blow of the wind, or you can submit to the force of the wind. Think about that. I've never, uh, I've never been in a sailboat before, but I've, I've seen those when I've been on vacation. If you're, if, you're, if you're piloting or whatever they call it, a sailboat, what do you do? You submit to the wind to get to your destination. I've went parasailing before on vacation. What do you do with parasailing? You submit to the power of the wind. When I was a youth pastor, if we had windstorms, I would always get one of those coffee carts out of the kitchen and the biggest trash bag I could find. I'd tie the trash bag around my waist, sit on top of the coffee cart, and let the wind take me all around the parking lot. I don't do that now because when you become a lead pastor, you get in trouble for those things. But why do you do that? You're just submitting to the power of the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't stop it because the wind does as it pleases. Instead, you submit to the wind's power. So let me close with this thought as we tie up here John chapter 3. What's the role of the Spirit in my conversion? What's the role in my daily sanctification when it comes to the Spirit of God? If I, if I want Him to change me, to grow me, mold me, and shape me, how does that work? Jesus shows us in verse 8. You submit to the Spirit's power in your life. How does that work? Friends, listen, when we read the Word, the wind of the Spirit will blow in your heart. Don't complicate it. When we intentionally take time to pray to God and to have conversation with Him, the Bible promises that the wind of the Spirit will blow in your heart. An invisible work that will manifest itself externally eventually will be done. When you gather with the local church and we hear the Word of God proclaimed through teaching and through singing, what happens? The invisible spirit does an invisible work in your heart, molding and shaping and growing us. What do we do? We simply submit to the spirit's power. And here's what encourages me most about this passage. This is probably a familiar passage to some of you. This John 3.16 is only eight verses later. For God so loved the world. Most quoted Bible verse in all of the world. Here's what encourages me the most about this passage. is in John 3... We see Nicodemus seeking out Jesus. He wants to understand spiritual birth. You fast forward four chapters to John 17, or I'm sorry, John 7. You see Nicodemus standing up for Jesus. See the progression? There was a religious council that had gathered that was trying to figure out how to take down Jesus, and Nicodemus explains how the law works to them. And he says, you just need to let this thing run its course. So in chapter 3, he seeks out Jesus. Chapter 7, he stands up for Jesus. Four chapters later, one under the cover of night to find Jesus. Four chapters later, in broad daylight, surrounded by his peers. Why? Because I think the Spirit of God was already doing a work in Nicodemus' heart. Fast forward to John chapter 19. There were two people present when Jesus was being taken into the tomb. You remember who they were? Joseph of Arimathea who donated the tomb, and there was one other person, Nicodemus, who brought the embalming spices to embalm the dead body of Jesus. You see, in chapter 3, he sought Jesus out. In chapter 7, he stood up for Jesus. In chapter, 17, or chapter 19, what did he do? He stood with Jesus. You see the progression? 
You see, there's an invisible work that the Spirit of God did in Nicodemus' heart starting here in John chapter 3, that by John chapter 19, the Spirit had already formed him into who he wanted him to be. That's the Spirit's role in my conversion. That's the Spirit's role in my sanctification. He changes me from the inside out. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word for this day, for the privilege we have to gather, God, as your people in your house. And Lord, I pray that you would take this passage today, Lord, that it would not simply fall, Lord, on our ears, but it would make its way to our hearts. That any religious striving that we've done to try to earn merit or to please you, God, that that would not be the driving force behind our relationship with you, Lord, but we'd simply submit to you and allow your spirit to do a work in our hearts. Lord, I pray now as we sing, that, God, this is a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven this morning. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.